In this class, we're going to talk about Aboriginal title. And specifically, we'll talk about the Silcoteen case, which is the first case where the Supreme Court of Canada recognized that a First Nation had established Aboriginal title. At the outset, I'd like to compare Aboriginal title to Aboriginal rights. So we talk about Aboriginal rights in the previous part of this lecture when we talk about Sparrow and Vanderpeet. And we'll remember that Aboriginal rights are these communally held rights to engage in a practice, custom, or tradition that is integral to the distinctive culture of an Aboriginal group. And the test is you have to show that there's an activity that's an element of a practice, custom, or tradition that was integral to the distinctive culture of the Aboriginal group as of the time of contact with Europeans. So you want to think Aboriginal rights are often things like hunting, fishing, trapping rights. These are often litigated because they're economic, but it can also be a right to engage in a spiritual or religious practice. And the categories are not closed. It's anything that you can show is a element of a practice, customer tradition that's integral to the distinctive culture. And now remember, when we talk about distinctive culture, it doesn't have to be the case that only this one Aboriginal group does something, but it just needs to be an element that is distinctive of their culture. And it can't be something that is so common that every culture does it. It needs to be something that would distinguish this Aboriginal culture from some others. Aboriginal title, on the other hand, is the Aboriginal right to land. It is the right to land itself. And Aboriginal title, you want to think Aboriginal rights are tied to contact. What, what was distinctive about a group at the time of contact with Europeans? Aboriginal title is tied to the time of the Declaration of Crown Sovereignty, which is different in different parts of Canada. It's most relevant in British Columbia because that is where Aboriginal title claims are overwhelmingly made. In British Columbia, the date of Crown Sovereignty is 1846. So Aboriginal title is called the highest and best of Aboriginal rights. It's the complete package. The Aboriginal group, if it can establish Aboriginal title, then the Aboriginal group will have the right to the enjoyment and occupancy of the lands, the right to possess the lands, a right to the economic benefits flowing from the lands, and a right to proactively manage the lands. And it, what's important about this is if you establish title, your rights to the title land are not tied or limited to pre-contact practices. It's, it's everything. You can do with the land what a landowner can do with land within the broader Canadian system with a few limitations that I'll speak about at the end that derive from the unique nature of land held by Aboriginal title. But you want to think in a general framework, we're talking about effective ownership of land with all the rights that come with it. That's what Aboriginal title is. Aboriginal rights, on the other hand, is the right to do some activity 
but the right is limited to that activity. It's a right to fish. It's a right to engage in a religious or spiritual practice. But it's limited to that thing, which is the element of a practice, custom, or tradition integral to the distinctive culture of the Aboriginal group. And you want to remember when you're thinking about Aboriginal title that the idea of Aboriginal title is not a new one, despite it taking until 2014 for the Silco team to get a judicial declaration confirming the existence of Aboriginal title to their traditional lands. The concept of Aboriginal title dates back at least as far as the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which recognizes the existence of Aboriginal title. And then we had this development in the law where initially the thinking had been that Aboriginal title was granted by the crown through the royal proclamation. But that thinking evolved in the Calder and later the Guerin case away from the idea of the crown granting Aboriginal title and towards the idea that the Aboriginal title's basis is not an act of the crown, but rather is based in the fact that Aboriginal peoples existed and were present at the time of sovereignty. Of course, at the time of the assertion of European sovereignty, the legal theory is that the crown acquires the radical sovereign or underlying title to all of the land in the area where sovereignty is declared in relation to. But the Aboriginal title issue creates a question of whether this land was burdened by a pre-existing right held by the Aboriginal groups. And the courts have said, yes, indeed, the fact of prior occupation created this burden on this claim of underlying title. And we'll talk more in the next lecture about the tension between the assertion of sovereignty and the existence of Aboriginal title and Aboriginal rights. But what you want to remember for this initial introduction to Aboriginal title is the idea that in theory, even after a successful claim of Aboriginal title, a successful recognition of Aboriginal title by the courts, the theory is that the crown still holds the radical underlying title to the land. The Aboriginal group, however, holds the entirety of the beneficial interest to that land. So while the crown still retains legal title, they don't have any beneficial interest in the land. So this is obviously a very British conception of land ownership, but if you remember from your property law class, you have the legal title to land and the beneficial interest in the land, the right to take the benefit of the land. And those can be split in the context of a of land that is held in trust. The trustee holds legal title, whereas the beneficiary of the trust arrangement has the right to benefit from the land. Well, it's a similar idea of a split between the radical underlying title and the beneficial interest to the land in the Aboriginal title context. The rights that you get, as I say, for Aboriginal, if you hold Aboriginal title, are quite similar to the rights of fee simple ownership, but there are some features, three features in particular, 
that make Aboriginal title distinct from other kinds of land ownership. The one is inalienability, the second is source, and the third is the communal nature of the land. So the inalienability is the idea that the Aboriginal groups can't sell or dispose of the land except as to the crown. Same idea we ran into in Garin and we talked about in the Royal Proclamation, but it's the idea that even if you prove Aboriginal title, this doesn't mean you could market your land as a First Nation. Rather, if you want to dispose of that land to somebody outside of the nation, you have to first surrender that land to the crown, and then they can, within the fiduciary relationship, negotiate a sale or a lease. The second thing is the source. I mentioned this again. The source of Aboriginal title to land is not from the crown's granting of the interest. It is arising from the historical fact of occupation at the time of sovereignty. And the final thing that's an important distinguishing feature of Aboriginal title versus other forms of title is the communal nature. Aboriginal title is held communally. It's not held by individual members. Rather, the Aboriginal group holds the title and can give individual members rights to occupy parts of land and deal with land and the ways that you might expect any communal group holding land might be able to exercise their rights of ownership, but it is not an individual right of ownership. It has to be asserted on a community basis. And what's interesting about this communal nature of ownership of Aboriginal title land is that it leads to a significant limitation on what the First Nation can do with the title land. And specifically, the First Nation cannot use the title land in a way that would be inconsistent with the use of the land by future members of the group. This has been described in Delgamook, an early and important Aboriginal title case, as a restraint on destruction of the land that would amount to equitable waste. In the Silcoteen case, you may have seen that the description is that being a form of collective title, Aboriginal title must be available for all succeeding generations. Lands held under Aboriginal title cannot be used or developed in a manner that would substantially deprive future generations of the land's benefit. But changes in the land, even permanent changes, might be possible. So you have this communal character of ownership, which imposes this limitation. So if an Aboriginal group wanted to exploit its title lands through strip mining, that would likely be found to be outside of the possibility of holding the land communally and ensuring it's available for the benefit of a future generation. So how do you go about establishing Aboriginal title? As discussed at paragraph 25 of Silco Teen, there are three requirements. You must show occupation that is sufficient, continuous, and exclusive. So sufficient, continuous, exclusive. And so let's let's took it, look at these one by one. What is sufficiency of occupation? And this is discussed in Silcoteen at paragraphs 33 to 44. And the court says, look, the problem here is that not every, this is a passing traverse, not every time you could historically show an Aboriginal group was in a location shows 
an interest in that land sufficient to ground title. There must be more. There must be more than just occasional presence in order to show that this group has title to this land. And the court says at paragraph 38 that to in order to sufficiently occupy the land for purposes of title, the Aboriginal group in question must show that it, it has historically acted in a way that would communicate to third parties that it held the land for its own purposes. Saying it needs to communicate to other parties. If you were to come to this area, you would say, okay, it's clear that this group holds this land. They're making a claim for and they hold this land. The court says this doesn't require sort of a notorious invisible use akin to adverse possession. So in the old common law adverse possession, if you visibly and are known to live in a particular place that can found adverse possession. But it, it doesn't also need to be just purely a subjective or internal belief that there's a, a ownership of this land. Rather, the court says there has to be evidence of a strong presence on or over the land, which manifests itself in acts of occupation that could reasonably be interpreted as demonstrating that the land in question belonged to, was controlled by, or was under the exclusive stewardship of the claimant group. This doesn't necessarily have to be consistent presence on parts of the land, and the idea of sufficiency of occupation should take into account differing modes of life for different Aboriginal groups. And then the court at paragraph 39 draws an analogy between the common law idea of general occupancy. And a general occupant at common law is a person asserting possession of land over which no one else has a present interest or with respect to which title is uncertain. So this is an important factor. There's an intention to occupy a land for which title is uncertain. So the court concludes a summary at paragraph 41 and they say, what is required is a culturally sensitive approach to sufficiency of occupation based on the dual perspectives of the Aboriginal group in question and the common law notion of possession as a basis for title. And the court notes it's not possible to list every indicia of occupation that might apply in a particular case. But they do note the common law test for possession, which requires an intention to occupy or hold land for the purposes of the occupant must be considered alongside the perspectives of the Aboriginal group, which depending on the size and manner of living, might conceive of possession of land in a somewhat different manner than did the common law. And again, I say it doesn't necessarily have to be continual physical presence. Regular use of territory for hunting, fishing, and trapping and foraging can be sufficient to ground title, so long as it shows an intention on the part of the Aboriginal group to hold or possess the land in a manner that's comparable to what would be required to establish title at common law. So just as if, if you own a, a large farm or you have a large forest where there's wild animals, it's possible at common law to show that that's an interest that amounts to ownership. And indeed, the, you know, the kings in England had the king's hunting grounds, right, that were big forest that, that the royal would uh, the royal family would go hunting in. So this is not an unknown idea that you could have an assertion of ownership over a wide area that's not used for physical occupation of people at all times. 
but you need to be able to show that there is this ownership nature of the interest. And the court says it's going to look to analogy within common law to see if the Aboriginal group's claim is sufficient. So what you want to take away in this first in this or this first component of the Aboriginal title test, sufficiency of occupation, is that it won't be enough just to show members of an Aboriginal group were in a particular location at a particular time. Rather, you'll have to show that at the right time, at the date of the declaration of Crown Sovereignty, there was a understanding within the group that there was an area of ownership. There was an area that was within the possession of that group. And it doesn't have to be just possession for physical presence. It can also include hunting grounds, foraging grounds, etc. But there needs to be a sufficient level of occupation. And again, the court in Silcotine effectively sets out what this idea is in, in a broad sense. But because there hasn't been extensive jurisprudence, we don't really have the details yet that we might expect after more nations have litigated in relation to more territory. The next factor that the court talks about is continuity of occupation. And importantly, continuity of occupation only arises if you're attempting to prove sufficiency of occupation based on current occupation. So if a group says, look, we are in this area, this is the area we have title land to, then the court won't simply say, oh yes, you, you do exercise exclusive control of that area, so you have title land. Rather, they'll say, well, the important date is the date of sovereignty. So can you show me not just that you use that land now, which may be evidence of historical use of that land as well, but can you show me continuity? Can you show me a connection between your current use of that land and the historical use of that land? Continuity does not require an unbreaking, unbroken chain. You could have left the land and come back. But what you want to show is that this land that you are claiming, that you currently occupy and that you say is the title land, is the same land as was occupied by your group at the time of sovereignty. So continuity, you can think of as sort of the second of the three major factors the court has laid out, but it is somewhat subordinate to the first factor because it's a way of showing sufficiency of occupation. And the final factor the court talks about is exclusivity of occupation at the time of sovereignty. The group must have had the intention and capacity and capacity to retain exclusive control. So the problem here arises when there's competing claims to the same area. In such a circumstance, you may be unable to show exclusivity of occupation. No one group can show that it historically had the ability to exclude other Aboriginal groups from that land. It doesn't matter if other Aboriginal groups occasionally were there or passed through. Uh, certainly other people can come onto your property and you can have guests and visitors and you can tolerate even perhaps trespassers without losing your property. However, if more than one group feels a right to land, 
If you were to give one of those groups the land and then all of a sudden they could exclude the other groups, you know, that would be unfair. Simply showing that you use a park regularly doesn't mean that you can then acquire title to that park and exclude other people. And the same idea holds within the Aboriginal title context, the idea being that if more than one group has a legitimate claim to a piece of land, you can't really give title to any of the groups individually because they would then have the right to exclude the other groups who may have had an equal or at least a sufficiently similar claim to that group which enjoys now title. So exclusivity of occupation is another factor that must be shown before you can establish Aboriginal title. Exclusivity of occupation gets tricky in practice because it can pit different Aboriginal groups against each other and sometimes the distinctions between Aboriginal groups is not as historically delineated as it might seem when you look at them today when there's litigation over competition for scarce resources. You know, I, I don't want to speak for any Aboriginal group, um, and I'm merely relaying my understanding of the dynamic amongst the some of the local Aboriginal groups in the Vancouver area. But my understanding is that the Musqueam and Silcoteen peoples saw themselves as different Aboriginal groups, but they were closely related as Coast Salish people. And there was significant amounts of intermarriage and trade and visiting. And, um, you know, you may have an ancestor who belonged to the other group and you may marry somebody from another group. And so the notion that there was a absolute distinctiveness, you know, and exclusivity becomes tricky when these groups are trying to prove Aboriginal title because you can show significant presence of members of the other group in the territories that are being claimed, that are maybe claimed. And so there's a, an issue where the more Aboriginal groups are sort of carved up and balkanized into small competing um, units the more difficult it will be to show the exclusivity of occupation. So one thing that should jump out at you is to think, okay, I have to show sufficiency of occupation, possibly a continuity of occupation, and exclusivity of occupation. And I have to do this in relation to the 1840s. And I have to do this bearing in mind the awful history of Canada's policies, which explicitly aimed at destroying Aboriginal societies and assimilating Aboriginal peoples into the broader settler society and the banning on traditional languages and the massive amounts of death. If you think about all those things, oh my goodness, is this really, really hard? And that's a major takeaway about Aboriginal title to think is this test for proving Aboriginal title in court, to go to court and the burden is on the group claiming Aboriginal title to prove that they've had a sufficient occupancy and it's been exclusive and to perhaps to try to trace continuity in order to support that sufficiency of occupation. The burden placed on Aboriginal groups is striking and substantial. And 
the cost of this litigation is mind-blowing. Further, Aboriginal groups, many Aboriginal groups at least, relied on an oral tradition. And of course, that oral tradition and oral history was greatly interrupted by the things I talked about at the outset of this lecture with the residential schools, the 60s scoop, and the Indian Act imposition of a wide array of discriminatory rules and laws, as well as the Indian Act imposition of the ban system to disrupt traditional governance. And when you consider all of these things, the accomplishment of the Silcoteen in proving Aboriginal title is truly remarkable. There has been a number of title cases that have been started and have been delayed or stalled out. The Wet'suwet'en went to the Supreme Court of Canada in relation to the Delgamook case in the 90s, and their claim has still not been finally determined. The Haida, whose traditional territory is a large island, Haida Gwaii, sometimes referred to as the Queen Charlotte Islands, Haida Gwaii is a island, and the Haida plainly, frankly, have Aboriginal title over that land. However, there hasn't been a declaration of such because it is so hard to go through court, to muster the evidence, to take on the expense and the burden in order to judicially prove a title claim. But as you'll see in the Silcoteen case, the First Nation was able to establish title. And the court provided a summary at paragraph 50, which is helpful. And the court says, the claimant group bears the onus of establishing Aboriginal title. So just think for a second what that means. It's not that the crown has to show that it doesn't have this burden on its title. There's no onus on the crown to determine where title exists. Rather, the framework puts the onus on the claimant group. This has been the subject of much criticism. There's been a suggestion that it would be much more fair for a presumptive approach to Aboriginal title, wherein if a claim is made in a reasonably sound evidentiary basis is put forward, it would be on the ground to disprove title or accept it as existing. But the summary, the claimant group bears the onus of establishing Aboriginal title. The task is to identify how pre-sovereignty rights and interests can properly find expression in modern common law terms. In asking whether Aboriginal title is established, the general requirements are one, sufficient occupation of the land claimed to establish title at the time of assertion of European sovereignty. Two, continuity of occupation where present occupation is relied on. Three, exclusive historic occupation. In determining what constitutes sufficient occupation, one looks to Aboriginal culture and practices and compares them in a culturally sensitive way with what was required at common law to establish title on the basis of occupation. Occupation sufficient to ground Aboriginal title is not confined to specific sites of settlement, but, expand, but extends to tracts of land that were regularly used for hunting, fishing, or otherwise exploiting resources and over which the group exercised effective control at the time of assertion of European sovereignty. So you go to that paragraph 50, you go through those sentences one by one. If you understand what they mean at a reasonable level, 
then you have a, a good understanding of the framework for establishing Aboriginal title. Now you go through all that, you prove that you have this right, you prove that you have this exclusive right to occupy this land, you prove that the Crown's underlying radical title was always burdened by this possessory interest, but the Crown can still infringe your title. The infringement paradigm established in Vanderpeet applies as well to Aboriginal title claims, and that's the issue I'll turn to next. And the court explains, starting at paragraph 77 of Silcoteen, that there are three considerations to determine if overriding Aboriginal title holdings group wishes on the basis of the broader public good can be done. Three steps. First, it must be shown that the Crown discharged its procedural duty to consult and accommodate the First Nation. The duty to consult we will deal with next class when we talk about the Haida decision. Second, it must be shown that there is a compelling and substantial objective for the infringement. Again, similar to Sparrow, similar to Oaks. And finally, the court says, the government action must be consistent with the Crown's fiduciary obligation to the group. So again, this idea of a fiduciary obligation, and this is tying back into Guerin, and it comes through in Sparrow also, and the idea that there's this fiduciary relationship, and the government must act in a manner that's consistent with that fiduciary obligation. And we are going to come back to fiduciary obligation again in some greater detail when we talk about the honor of the crown next class with respect to Manitoba Métis. But before we do that, I want to break down that third step, the government action being consistent with the crown's fiduciary obligation to the group. Because in Silcoteen, the Supreme Court of Canada makes clear that the considerations that go into that analysis are effectively the same as the considerations from the Oaks test. And this comes out abundantly clear at paragraphs 85 to 87 of the decision. And at paragraph 85, the court describes the fiduciary duty in the context of justification as something that constrains the crown's powers in relation to the underlying title. They hold this for the benefit. So there's a fiduciary or trust obligation to the group that has the benefit. And the court says this relationship where the crown holds the legal title but must respect the beneficial interest of the Aboriginal group affects the justification framework in two ways. At first, the crown must respect the principle that the land will be available for future generations. Because it's communally held, the crown cannot, consistent with its fiduciary obligation and the nature of its legal interest in that land, as compared to the beneficial interest held by the First Nation, the crown cannot, consistent with that legal interest and the fiduciary duty, use the land in a way that will destroy it so that it can't be used by future generations. The court says, incursions on Aboriginal title cannot be justified if they would substantially deprive future generations of the benefit of the land. The court goes on and says the 
Fiduciary duty infuses an obligation of proportionality into the justification process. So the court says, within this fiduciary relationship that we're talking about in the justification framework, there is a duty of proportionality. And in recognizing this proportionality, the court effectively imports the Oaks test. The court says, implicit in the Crown's fiduciary duty to the Aboriginal group is the requirement that the incursion is necessary to achieve the government's goal. And then the court says in brackets, rational connection, that the government go no further than necessary to achieve it in, sorry, parentheses, minimal impairment. And that the benefits may be expected to flow from that goal are not outweighed by adverse effects on the Aboriginal interest. Proportionality of impact. This is directly analogous to an Oaks framework. So you can think, that the justification framework set out in Silcoteen for justifying an incursion to Aboriginal title has three components. First, make sure the duty to consult has been discharged. Second, consider whether there is a pressing and substantial objective that could justify infringing title. Third, ensure that the, just, the infringement at issue will not deprive future generations of the benefit of the land. And then fourth, go through an Oaks framework, look for rational connection, minimal impairment, and proportionality of impact. So what to take away from the Silcoteen decision? Well, it tells you how to establish Aboriginal title and how the Crown might justify an infringement of Aboriginal title. And taking a step back, it's important to think a bit about how this framework works at a conceptual level. So ultimately, no matter what, there will not be a recognition of an absolute Aboriginal jurisdiction under this framework, despite the fact that exclusive occupation can be traced, and despite the fact that a sufficient occupation that even the common law would recognize it as possess possessory and ownership interest can be proven. Nevertheless, the Crown still has this right to infringe and impose, therefore, burdens upon Aboriginal groups on their title lands. And what's the source of this burden? Well, it's entirely fictional. It's a fictional idea of Crown sovereignty. It's this underlying theoretical idea of this radical power this complete power that vests in and founds government that was initially held by the monarch him or herself, this idea of the radical power of the crown. And so it's, it's nothing but a declaration. We have this underlying title because we said so. And that problem, that what feels odd about that, especially when you think about some of the First Nation groups had extremely limited or no contact with British people at the date of the assertion of Crown sovereignty. And yet, to still be bound by it, it, it it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing to theoretically understand how that could be, how the government could claim this land and assert this radical title over groups that it never conquered and, and in some instances it never 
made any effort to, to meet. So what do you do with that? Well, the common law used to have an easy solution. They said, well, it's not a civilization we'll recognize as sufficiently akin to a European civilization. We'll declare this terra nullis. It was, it was open land. It was for the taking. It was anyone's to grab. Well, that's a horribly racist approach. And it's just sort of absurd to suggest that Aboriginal groups in Canada didn't have complex societies and complete legal and constitutional frameworks within which they were operating. And there's just, there, there's nothing apart from a 18th and 19th century colonial racist viewpoint to support that. That was the underpinning for the terra nullis theory. And the terra nullis theory has been rejected. Courts have said, no, we won't. We can't accept that. But they glide right over, right into this idea of crown sovereignty still existing. There hasn't been any convincing explanation for how you can abandon the terra nullis idea, abandon the idea that there just wasn't any societies here, so that's how we did it. You can't abandon that idea, still maintain crown sovereignty, and and have I haven't seen any explanation that is sensible as to how that could be. Some people say that that's simply not a justiciable question because the whole basis for the court's power comes from this same idea of this radical sovereignty of the crown. And the, some people say, well, the courts, you can't question your own fundamental basis of the power. It's the same thing. It's not for the courts to question the basis of a claim for sovereignty, which creates the paradigm in which they operate. Some people find that to be unsatisfying, however. And others, we'll talk more about treaties next class, but other scholars have noted the Crown entered into treaties with some First Nations and have said in those treaties that they've that the First Nations seed yield up and surrender their rights and title to these lands that were their traditional territory, which suggests that the Crown didn't already have the title to those areas, and yet the Crown says also that they have the underlying title to places where there never was a treaty. And we talked about unceded territory at the very outset of this class and again at the outset of this lecture. So there's this tension. What is the theoretical basis for this claim of sovereignty? And this was articulated very well by... Aaron Mills in an essay called What is a Treaty, where Professor Mills says, despite its participation in contemporary treaty processes, processes, Canada nonetheless claims radical title to all of Turtle Island. Just as a parenthetical, Turtle Island is a phrase that is used to describe North America by many people sympathetic to indigenous rights issues claims radical title to all of Turtle Island, knowing full well that indigenous peoples were already living on it as persons, peoples, and confederacies of distinct constitutional orders before settlers arrived. As recently as the Silkotine Nation case, 
The Supreme Court of Canada asserted that Canada acquired radical title simply by willing it so. The court then enters into contortions. On the one hand, it claims that the doctrine of terra nullis, which existed under the law of nations, never applied in Canada. Yet it brazenly refuses to say how, in the absence of the belligerent racism of terra nullis, Canada did acquire a claim over Indigenous lands sufficiently powerful to dispossess Indigenous peoples of them. The court explicitly denies the application of terra nullis in Canada and thereby attempts to disclaim a legacy of domination at law, yet amazingly accepts no obligation to articulate how Canada's mere assertion of sovereignty translated into a legitimate claim of radical title. Only under conditions of domination is governance in the face of so flagrant an omission and even the need to offer a pretense of its justification imaginable. So there's a strong words by Professor Aaron Mills, but it puts the question, if you're not going to say this was terra nullis, how did you acquire title sufficient to displace indigenous groups? I don't know of a convincing answer, but it's a problem that needs to, in my view, be grappled with by the courts and indeed by all Canadians. And there is a term that has been used at times to refer to this process of grappling with this dichotomy between the the prior existence of Aboriginal Indigenous society and this assertion of Crown sovereignty. It's a term you'll hear a lot. Reconciliation. You frankly can't hear a government position on Indigenous issues these days without hearing that term reconciliation. The problem with reconciliation as a term is that it has been used in a number of different ways, even by the courts, which mean very different things. And so when you hear that term reconciliation, I want you to think which of these three categories is the person using it, using it in relation to. The one category is the idea of reconciliation as between the pre-existence of Aboriginal Indigenous societies and the assertion of Crown sovereignty. That fundamental legal problem I just discussed is described by the courts as a question that needs reconciliation. Reconciliation is a process of reconciling how we can both grapple with this Crown sovereignty claim as well as the pre-existence of indigenous societies. This is the way it's used in, the term is used in Vanderpeet at paragraph 31 to describe a basic purpose of section 35.1 of the Constitution. And in Delgamook, the Supreme Court of Canada said about reconciliation, ultimately it is through negotiated settlements with good faith and give and take on all sides, reinforced by the judgments of this court, that we will achieve what I stated in Vanderpeet to be a basic purpose of section 35.1, the reconciliation of the pre-existence of Aboriginal societies with the sovereignty of the crown. Let's face it, we are all here to stay. That's the first idea of reconciliation, and it's the idea of how to grapple with this seeming contradiction, or at least this unexplained theory at the core of the indigenous settler relationship How do you reconcile 
pre-existing societies with the assertion of crown sovereignty. That's one way that the court will use the term reconciliation. But they'll also talk about the project of reconciliation in two other ways, which are a bit different. The second one, not too far removed, but the idea is that reconciliation requires that Canadians reconcile with historical abuses and mistreatment of Indigenous populations. So here, reconciliation is not about this legal idea of underlying sovereignty versus pre-existing society, but rather it's about we must reconcile and come to terms with the horrible abuses that have happened. The final way it's used, though, which is very different and pernicious, I would say, is the idea that reconciliation is a process of give and take and requires sacrifice on all sides. So the idea that the First Nations should be giving up something in the process of pursuing reconciliation, that is a significant twisting of the other two principles in my view. So, the, for example, the Federal Court of Appeal has said the path towards reconciliation is a give-and-take process. And, you know, it, it doesn't jump out how there ought to be give-and-take and sacrifice on both sides in order to deal with historical abuses suffered by First Nations. And it also doesn't jump out as to how, if you need to explain the dilemma between the pre-existence of Aboriginal societies and a crown assertion of sovereignty, that implies a process of give and take. So when you hear the term reconciliation, I want you to think, what is being referred to? Is the idea being raised the question of how do you grapple with the pre-existence of Aboriginal societies with the assertion of crown sovereignty? Is the idea being grappled with how do you come to terms with the historical abuses suffered by Canada's First Nations? Or is the term reconciliation being used to suggest that First Nations have to give up something in order to further reconciliation? So as we leave this first lecture, I want you to take away a few key points. I want you to think of Garen and you think of the fiduciary relationship that is recognized in Garen. The idea that the crown owes an obligation to First Nations, which can give rise to a fiduciary duty in certain circumstances. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the Manitoba Métis case, which has a more modern articulation. Then it's probably helpful to next think about Vanderpeet. Though I went to Sparrow first in the lecture, Vanderpeet is the case about how you show the existence of an Aboriginal right. And you want to think Aboriginal rights are those elements of a practice, custom, or tradition that are integral to the distinctive culture of the Aboriginal group claiming the right. And you want to remember that distinctive doesn't mean that it's they're the only group that does something, but you want to say that this is an element of the culture that distinguishes it as a unique culture. It can't be something so general that you know most cultures do this thing but it's got to be something that is distinctive about that culture. And you want to think the date you're thinking about is pre-contact. That can be a long time ago. Contact between that Aboriginal group and Europeans. So if you can prove what 
were the elements of a practice, custom, or tradition integral to the distinctive culture of the Aboriginal group. And then you can show that the modern exercise of that right has continuity with that original practice, custom, or tradition to establish an Aboriginal right. And as a practical litigation matter, this can be extremely hard to marshal evidence to prove this. The courts have expressed flexibility and uh, willingness to listen to oral history and things like that, but it, it still is very hard to prove um, in great detail elements of an Aboriginal culture at a pre-contact time. But you do all that, you still have to go through Sparrow and you have to go through the recognition that those rights might be infringed and an infringement can be justified if the Crown can show that there's a valid legislative objective for the infringement and the Crown has acted in a manner that's consistent with the fiduciary trust-like relationship. And this requires effectively what's akin to an Oaks type analysis. Um, I think that the Oaks type analysis set out in Silcoteen will be expanded to um, apply to right situations as well, at least in respect of the explicit recognition that proportionality looks at a minimal impairment, rational connection, and proportionality of impacts question. But in Sparrow, the court talked about you know a link between the infringement and the state objective and infringing as little as possible. So you want to think there is this Sparrow analysis, the Sparrow justification, even though you don't have section one within an Aboriginal rights context. And then finally, you want to think the highest and best Aboriginal right is Aboriginal title. And that can be established under the Silcoteen framework, where if you can show sufficient occupation and you can show continuity of occupation, if the fact that you're on this land now is being used as evidence of historical occupation, and you can show exclusive occupation, then it's possible to establish Aboriginal title to attractive land. If you've established Aboriginal title, then the court can still justify an infringement of that title according to the test set out in Silcoteen, which builds upon the Sparrow analysis, but makes abundantly clear that what is being done is in effect an Oaks analysis with an added requirement that there be a duty to consult, which we'll talk about more next class, and an added requirement that there not be such an infringement that the value of the land for future generations is lost. So if you can think through those, those are the main themes that you need to take away from today's lecture. Next class, we will delve into this duty to consult, which is an extremely important procedural right that is where most of Aboriginal rights litigation has been concerned with for the last few years. And we'll also talk about treaty rights a bit. We'll talk about the honor of the crown in more depth, and we'll talk about the intersection of the charter and Aboriginal rights.